Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of AUHSD Future Talks. I'm your host, Superintendent Michael Matsuda of the Anaheim Union High School District. And as our 7,000 podcast followers know, this show is dedicated to the future of education, the future of work for all of our young people, not just in Anaheim, but uh, we've, uh, we've had national level speakers, and we've been very, very fortunate to have some great friends of education and of young people. Today, we're very, very honored to have a special guest, Lindsay Spindle, who's been named recently the head of the Stanley Family Philanthropies. Uh, Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. What a treat. Yes. And we, um, you know, as our audience may not know about uh, the Stanley uh, uh, Foundation and what they've done and of course, uh, this is Henry and Susan uh, Samueli, and Henry is the uh, owner of the uh, Ducks and the Honda Center and currently involved with many, many philanthropic uh, endeavors, uh, not only across Orange County, but really focus on uh, the um, sort of the, the marginalized in our county and those who are not often at the table. And... Uh, the, Foundation and the family is also involved in a very large, uh, large-scale development called the Orange County Vibe. But uh, they reached out and they've hired you to run the whole thing, right? And uh, so we always start, Lindsay, with sort of, you know, who you are and what are your drivers? What is your calling? So could you share a little bit about the rich lived experience that you've had? Oh, I'm I'm happy to. Uh, well, first, thank you for having me. It's uh, been such a treat getting to know my way around Orange County, and uh, you've been a, a terrific part of helping me understand so much about Anaheim, about the wonderful students um, and talent that we have in this community. And so, uh, it's it's great to be here. So, some fun facts about me: I am a fourth generation native Washingtonian, born and bred in Washington D.C. Um, there aren't many of us that are from the city and grew up there, and it's a real point of pride for me. Um, in many ways, you know, I grew up surrounded by government and this idea that public service mattered. It's what made my hometown tick, and I think that permeated into me at a young age, being surrounded by so many people that were motivated by public service. Um, my grandfather was a huge source of inspiration in my life. Um, he came from very modest means, uh, became an orthodontist, serving largely a rural and underserved population because he believed that the gift of a smile was something that carried you so far into the world. He never wanted anyone to be excluded from having good dental health care and a, and a smile that would carry you out and help you introduce yourself with confidence. And when my grandmother died very suddenly in her 60s, my grandfather was devastated. And he sold his orthodontia practice. And for the rest of his life, he spent every day in volunteerism. He was one of the first volunteers at the National Holocaust Museum that opened in D.C., and he worked there until he died as his health um, 
got worse and worse, they would move him into jobs where he could be sitting or doing things that, that weren't as physically challenging. He volunteered in a soup kitchen in a church in a very, very rough part of Washington, D.C., which now has been gentrified and is really quite um, lavish and expensive. Um, and he volunteered on a suicide hotline. I didn't even know at that time what really suicide was. And he helped explain all these things to me, he helped explain and humanize the people who suffered most in Washington. And he made sure that I was always volunteering and experiencing these things alongside with him. And so, you know, at a very young age and really in large part because of my grandfather, I think I just always felt like if I was to have a calling, if you will, it would always be in service of others. It would be some way that I could use whatever talents and strengths I had to make a difference in the lives of others. And that's really in a career that's been sort of circuitous, that is the through line. You can see it in everything that I've done, that it's really a career that's motivated around social impact. You know, um, I think this, the question about one's calling is so important and it explains so much of who we are, who we became, and who mentored and influenced us. And I'm sure those stories about working in a soup kitchen in particular, uh, like you really influenced you because I think you definitely have had uh, uh, emerged as a leader in dealing with childhood hunger uh, through this uh, No Kid Hungry campaign that you were involved with and that you led. Yeah. What can you share a little bit about that and why, you know, in this rich country, right? We And certainly, and we're going to zero in on Orange County because Orange County is perceived as a rich, it is a very rich county. Um, why do we, in this day and age, do we still have childhood hunger? Yeah. At food, you know, food insecurity is an issue I think about all the time. And I, I moved into it professionally, really. Um, it was, it was a real shock in my career. I had been in healthcare sort of policy, healthcare communications, um, uh, government relations for most of my career. And I got approached by the No Kid Hungry campaign to come and be the first chief communications and brand officer. And I remember my first meeting with the CEO, Billy Shore, um, who is a remarkable man. And I remember saying to him, I'm not really a hunger person. Like, I don't know that this is for me. And he said, well, do you care about health? I said, yeah. So, well, do you care about education? I said, yeah. He said, do you care about poverty? And I said, yeah. He said, then of course you're a hunger person because hunger is the thing that once you solve for it, it has this multiplier effect. When children are fed, they can grow and they hit the milestones that are important for childhood development. When they're consistently fed, they can learn, they come to school, they're able to concentrate and focus. They're not labeled as a discipline problem when in fact they were never a discipline problem, they were just hungry. When you start to feed people consistently, you see families rise out of poverty because they're able to do so much more. So, so there are lots of people who think they aren't necessarily a food or a hunger person, but in fact, all of us are. 
And one of the reasons I've always been so interested in food insecurity, particularly here in the United States, is because this is a solvable problem. We have enough food. We have enough distribution systems. We have some pretty good federal programs that need to be modernized, especially some of the the feeding programs in schools, which you know very well. What we've lacked is the will. We've lacked the will to say, this is one of these problems. We're just going to get off of our to-do list. And I've never, ever wavered in my belief that this really is a solvable problem with the right mix of creativity and will and capital. Well, in fact, that's one of the things that brought us together uh, through the Sam Wiley Foundation is our shared uh, concern about food deserts here in Orange County and particularly in Anaheim. And the foundation has been so generous in supporting our Magnolia Agriscience Community Center in which we're trying to solve the issues of, of food deserts. How would you, how do you define food deserts, Lindsay, and, and, and this concept of food as medicine? Yeah, how, do you, yeah. how do you define those things for our audience? I'm happy to. You know, I remember um, when I worked with the No Kid Hungry campaign, I used to go visit lots of different schools that were trying innovative um, in-school feeding programs, such as breakfast in the classroom. So instead of serving breakfast before the bell, integrating it into the school day so more and more children would have access to that important meal of the day. And I was at a public school in El Monte, California, East LA. um, And I witnessed the most beautiful thing and also the saddest thing I'd ever seen. And this was a six-year-old girl having her first bite of fresh fruit. She had never tasted fresh fruit and we're living in Southern California surrounded by this bounty of citrus and strawberries and so much goodness that so many of us take for granted. And she took one bite of it and she looked up and she started to cry and said, it's so sweet. And I'll never forget it, right? I mean, it was this beautiful moment of seeing kids experience things that you wish everyone had, but so devastatingly sad to think that there are places where children don't have, or families, routine access to things like fresh produce or fresh proteins that largely their nutritional needs are met through convenience store food, through fast food, through products that are largely packaged or canned, um, and they aren't getting the full nutritional value or the things that they really need to grow and thrive. So food deserts are really these places. They're places where people cannot get adequate access to the type of food that really keeps you healthy and strong. Um, There are food deserts in every type of place. This is an urban problem, it's a rural problem, it's a suburban problem, but you tend to see it a lot um, in urban environments um, where um, it's, it's why what you're doing at Magnolia is so fantastic, right? It's seeing this pocket of land and realizing the potential it has for education, for sustenance, for getting kids involved in understanding what it's like to grow harvest, 
eat and utilize food that can be grown in their backyards. Um, but but food deserts exist all over this country, and it really is one of the the biggest shames um, of of our sort of national um, equitable access to food. So, so I've noticed in, in your biography that you've had, uh, not surprisingly, a successful campaign in, in, in reducing smoking and addiction to nicotine, right? And this truth campaign. Because um, I'd like to have you sort of connect the addiction of uh, smoking and nicotine to sort of the addiction to unhealthy food, namely yeah. sugar, right? In these in these food deserts, right? So um, can you share a little bit about this truth campaign and how you might think, how you how that might help us help solve this addiction to sugar and junk food in food deserts? Yeah, wow, what a great question. So I was so lucky. I mean, I've been so lucky in my whole career, these amazing opportunities, amazing mentors, amazing teams. Um, in the late 1990s to get to work on what started in the state of Florida as a campaign called the Truth Campaign to try to persuade teenagers to quit or not smoke. And then it became so successful in Florida in a year's time produced a 30% reduction in youth smoking that it became the national campaign and it was rolled out all over the country. And the insight, the key insight in that campaign was that what is what is something common in teens? And it is that they love to challenge authority. And I say this as a parent of a 21-year-old and a 14-year-old, I know this to be true. And what kids needed to understand is that the authority to challenge was not their parents, it was the tobacco companies that were lying to them through deceitful marketing, through bad practices. And that if they started to challenge that authority, what might happen? And that was really what the truth campaign was. Teens telling us what they wanted to say to tobacco companies, how to challenge them, how to challenge their marketing practices, how to challenge how they were being um, marketed to. Um, and it was really pretty remarkable to see what the, what the results were when teens felt like they were in control. You know, teenagers, as you know very well, they're incredible people. They're so smart. They're so intuitive. And when they're given the opportunity to have their voices matter, to be heard, to be taken seriously, they can affect real change. I think this is true when it comes to food insecurity, that um, one of the most powerful untapped voices in each community are our, our children and teenagers who have the ability to demand better. They, they have the ability to demand better from their um, local public officials, from businesses around them. And sometimes they just need a little bit of adult support to be able to figure out how to do that. I think, again, what you're building at Magnolia is a different take on that. It's really giving teenagers the power to grow and produce what is not being what's not being made available to them. Uh, on the topic of addiction, I think unfortunately, you know, so many people suffer from addiction to sugar, to tobacco, to alcohol, um, increasingly to pain medication, and and addiction can touch anyone in any socioeconomic group in any race. 
Um, and, and, and it's often tragic, destruction of human life, family, of community. But we do know that some addiction you see more prominently in underserved and under-resourced communities. When it comes to things like sugar addiction, it's not so much that that's what people want, but it's what they get access to. If I'm a single mom with three children living on a SNAP budget, it's not necessarily that I'm always wanting to serve my children fast food or things that have less nutrition, but that's what's, what's most economical. I don't, I'm making a choice to feed my children what I can. Um, and so I think there are a lot of misunderstandings about um, families who have less resources not being as smart. It's, they're actually incredibly smart because they're managing a family budget that is very tight and trying to do best for their children. But it does form addictive habits to foods that are really not good for people. So, so there's lots of intertwined issues that I think um, when it comes to, to food and addiction that are at play. Um, but again, with the right mix of creativity, will, and capital, these are solvable problems in our community. So this concept of food as medicine is kind of like a, um, you know, it doesn't, when you first hear that, it's like, what, what is that? Right. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about is teaching our young people, especially from low income areas where all they have is access to this junk food to see food differently as this young six-year-old that you had mentioned that food can be medicine. Absolutely. Look, there's some really innovative pilots that have happened around the country. And my understanding, although I haven't read the full plan that was released by the White House this week, um, you know, there have been efforts to try to get Medicaid, for example, to pay for nutrition counseling and healthy cooking classes. Um, there are ways that you could use resources to actually really try to help people understand when I worked at No Kid Hungry, we had the um, Cooking Matters program, and it was really designed to give grocery store tours um, and cooking lessons for people who live on a SNAP budget to show them that you actually can uh, cook reasonably well and access healthy foods if you have the right tools and resources to do so. But there is no question that if we flip the paradigm and we really started to think of food as, as, as medicine, as something that is both preventative and curative, right? Things that really can do things for you that become more than fuel. This is right. What, what changes your ability gives you power. I think kids learning that at a young age is a really profound thing. Um, you know, there's so much literature watching the role of, of nutrition, healthy eating and things like diabetes and in, in heart disease prevention, right? I mean, there's so much there. We just haven't cracked the code on figuring out how to make sure everyone has equal access to these resources, tools, information, knowledge, and the food that people need. So the teachers, I mean, again, thank you to, to the Samueli Foundation for supporting our, our um, agri-science center, but it's not just at Magnolia, it's across the district. Uh, you had talked about like cracking the code. We do have a biotech program at NIM High School where the, our kids are, they visited the MAC and now they're all excited about food deserts, solving this problem. And, um, 
through a partnership with Fullerton College offering dual college credit. Oh, that's fantastic. High school kids now are learning how to crack the DNA code of genetic editing to help create maybe new types of code sequences, creating more drought resistant plants or some, you know, to solve this food uh, desert. And then we want to take their um, ideas, have them take their ideas and learn how to monetize that by running patents at our incubator lab at Western High School. So next time you're you're in town, we're going to take you and you're going to see some amazing well, things. Amazing. But what you're saying is exactly, I think, what I was talking about before about the multiplier effects of food. If you're interested in science, food is a great thing to do. If you're interested in the culinary careers and the culinary arts, food is an amazing place for you. Hospitality, if you're interested in healthcare, Food is this connective tissue besides what it means from sharing your culture and the experience of people around a table together and what that means for community. If you look at almost every career that's out there that your students may be interested in, there's a connection to food. So, you know, in the minutes we have left, we always try to ask a question. I mean, again, our, our students, our audience, we have teachers, we have our college partners, our audience too. But um, what AUHSD has really tried to do is prepare uh, kids for uh, purposeful work and employment. I know that Mr. Samueli is involved in that too, in terms of the support for esports and trying to connect them, kids in esports interested in other and jobs, right, connected to that. In this big net of solving the food crisis, and you said it's connective tissue, what what are some of the job opportunities do you see coming out of this? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I mean, one thing I would say is um, there are the jobs of today, and then there are the jobs of the future. And mm-hmm. I mean, boy... If you told me 15 years ago what some careers that people have now would be, I, 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 I wouldn't, I, I would never have believed you. So, I guess one thing I would say is, um, every student in your classroom is probably envisioning something that older people like us don't even, can't even, can't even imagine. You pointed, you pointed out this whole thing. Like we have traditional uh, kids who want to be doctors, right? Right. Well, if you want to be a doctor, you should come try to solve food deserts, right? Because like you say, there's so much connective tissue, access to healthcare, diabetes. Totally. We have kids looking in low-income areas now, and they're asking the question, why is there why are there so many dialysis centers in low-income areas, right? And they're working backwards. So they're, they're, they're just, I, I totally agree. There's so many jobs that we haven't even thought of, but totally, yeah. the, problem, the problems are so immense, right? So what other, um, in just closing minute or so, what specific advice would you want to give to it? Do you give to a, a kid that's uh, in high school that's trying to find their pathway? Yeah. I mean, I have a few suggestions. First, just looking at my own life. If you trace back through my schooling, my college degree, they have nothing to do with where I landed. Um, where... What what got me where I am um, is relentless curiosity, um, 
being hardwired for yes and saying yes to pretty much every opportunity that I ever got presented um, and believing in myself. I have aimed high my whole life that, and when I miss, I've landed in the middle, but constantly aiming high, even if you don't always land there is an amazing way to go out in the world, believing that you can achieve at the highest levels and aiming there. And sometimes you'll miss and you stop and you think about why, and then you go out and you aim high again. But every single person, every student in your school district has enormous potential. And I think the combination of curiosity, hard work, being open to new opportunities and aiming high will serve anyone well in terms of a future of work. Wow. Lindsay, uh, time has flown very quickly. And this you started, so fun. I and you started this with a story about your grandfather and how he was such a mentor to you. You are definitely paying it forward to our young people by being a mentor to so many of them and, and so many of us who are really grateful for the partnership with the Samueli Foundation. And you in particular, Lindsay, are uh, paying it forward. So we are so grateful for this time. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for allowing the Samueli Foundation to partner with you and support your work. Um, it's a real source of pride for us.